Hello and welcome to another summer episode of the Three Bid League podcast. As always, I'm Tyler, joined by my co-host Matt, and we promised you guys some great guests throughout the summer. Today's not going to disappoint. One of the absolute best in college basketball media, guy who's got his finger on the pulse of everything happening throughout the sport, but happens to uh, work out well for us following the A-10, that he is a specialist above all things of everything happening in college basketball in the city of Chicago and up the purple line. Kevin Sweeney of Sports Illustrated in the field of 68. Thank you for joining us. That's quite the introduction. Appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, I hope I don't disappoint. Uh, but yeah, it's always always good to talk with some uh, college hoops junkies this, uh, this time of year. So appreciate you having me. Yeah, I I, I would seriously uh, be surprised if you disappointed our listeners and us here with your A-10 knowledge. But we'll kick it off with those Loyola Chicago Ramblers that you know so much about. And last year, let's just get it out of the way. It was a bad transition into the A-10, finishing dead last. They were significantly younger than a normal Loyola team. And the biggest difference, after years of teams that played incredibly smart, very careful, deliberate basketball on both ends of the floor, they were really sloppy last season. They bring back over half their roster, and then they clearly wanted to go old on the recruiting trail, get guys with experience. So what did you think about Drew Valentine's third offseason at the helm of Loyola Chicago? I think all things considered, you probably couldn't have asked for a lot more, right? Like, I think there was kind of this narrative that bubbled up like in January and February as it became very clear that this was, say for what it was, a bad basketball team, that like, how are they going to be able to recruit? Are they going to be able to flip this roster and get it to a point where they can compete in 23-24? And I think they were able to do that for the most part with what they were able to add in the portal. They certainly got older. Um, they certainly got more athletic, longer. Um, you know, they, they added more ball handling and shooting, which was obviously critical. So, you know, I, I thought, and I think they also kind of got back to some of the culture stuff that I think was important. And this is something I've talked to, to Drew about and to, to people inside and around the program. Like, I, I think they, they felt, as though, look, we have this incredible culture that we've developed over the last five years since the Final Four run. Um, guys want to be a part of it. If we bring in, if we bring in talented kids, they will come in and they will be surrounded by kind of the Loyola way, and it will elevate them into Loyola players. And I just don't think they had an. I, I think they realized they made kind of a calculus calculus error there that like you still had to recruit the right. Loyola kids, the kids, the, the same kids that got them to a final four in a sweet 16 and then allowed them to develop on the floor instead of, Hey, let's bring in guys who maybe are talented, but weren't necessarily ready to play Loyola basketball. So I think they've, they've done a good job. I think this off season with the two Ivy kids in particular, with Greg Dolan and Dame Adela Kuhn, um, and then guys who've been a part of really good winning programs like Desmond Watson, who was on an NCAA tournament team at Davidson and, uh, Patrick Mwamba, who was part of an NCAA tournament team at Oral Roberts. So, um, you know, I, I think, I think all in all, you'd probably give their offseason an A, right? I mean, obviously, this is the time of year where if you don't feel really excited about your team, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, but I think there's reason for optimism, given how last year, at least compared to how last season went, if you're a, you're a Loyola fan. Yeah, you've already gone into my biggest question that 
I really kind of want to see an answer to before I believe that this team can get themselves into p- potential top four and maybe even title contention in this league. And that is, what is the identity of this team? Like I said earlier, they they were a team that didn't turn the ball over. They didn't foul back in the Porter Moser years, the first year of Valentine. Really, the only one thing that they did well last season was shoot well from two, 24th in the country. Well, that was actually their worst performance in seven years in that stat. So they bring in three guys from extremely smart schools. Even as a basketball player, you're not getting into Dartmouth, Cornell, or Davidson if you're not a smart guy. So do you see the identity shifting back to what they were in the past few years? Um, I'm not... I'm not sure. I don't know if it's going backwards necessarily, right? Like I, I do think that it's going to have Drew stamp on it. And I also think quite frankly, that like the way that Loyola played in the Missouri Valley wasn't necessarily going to be a, like, Oh, I, I, I think Drew was correct. Like Drew went into last off season saying like, Hey, we're going to be in the a 10. We need to play a little bit faster. We need to play with a little bit more space. Like we, we can't, we can't grind games out in the like high fifties, low sixties, like we did under Porter and we did in the Valley. Cause the Valley that's, that's the way the Valley likes to play. But I think, you know, I, I think he still had, I obviously made some miscalculations, misevaluations along the way. And I, I think it left them where they were roster wise. So I, I think they're still going to be a little bit more modern offensively. It's going to be a little bit more ball screen than like what Porter wanted to do. And obviously part of that was they had such a unique player in Crutwig who could, you know, like there's very few players in the country as a big man that you can play through the way they could do with Cam. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, but I, I I do think that like from like a identity standpoint and like a team, like a like a team competitiveness standpoint, it, it makes a huge difference to have guys who are really smart. Um, and and Dolan and Dame and then Des Watson as well. So, um, look like Loyola was not a bad Atlantic 10 basketball team last year. Loyola was a bad basketball team. Like the, I, like, I, I think there was a lot of, like, there was this kind of narrative around like the national, national like conversation. that was like, Oh, Loyola moved up in conference and couldn't hang. Like, no, Loyola would have come in like eighth in the Missouri Valley last year. They weren't a good basketball team. It was not, it was not the league that caused them to come in 15th. It was the fact that they didn't have enough shooting. They didn't have enough ball handling. They were sloppy. They were inexperienced. They made bad decisions. Um, like, you know, the list The list goes on. Did they need to get bigger and more athletic? Absolutely. Did they need to get, you know, more physical at the center position compared to some of the bigs in the, in the Atlantic 10? Absolutely. But the issue in my mind was not like, oh, man, they tried to go. They went to the A-10 and they did something completely different or did this, that, and the other thing. They just didn't have enough good college basketball players and i think they're in a much better position at this point the offseason um in terms of having just a lot more competitive athleticism and depth than they had a season ago yeah and i think going off what you said just loyola in general from the very beginning of the season i mean they needed a miracle to be i believe it was fairly dickinson who ended up having a special season i was at, i was at that game yes you, you picked a good one to go to that's for sure and i remember I think all of A10 Twitter was just sweating that out. Like, oh my gosh, what team did we invite to the conference? But uh, I I feel like when you have that unsuccessful of a season, especially in the recent era of college basketball with immediate transfers, what does it say about Loyola's culture that Braden Norris and Tom Welch came back as fifth-year seniors, their breakout junior college transfer, Philip Austin, decided to come back, and they had one of the best returning freshmen, Ben Schweiger. So 
you talked a lot about their culture at the beginning. Does that instill any confidence that for the most part, they kept everybody who could return? Yeah. I mean, I think guys love to play for Drew, right? Like he's a, I mean, this is cliche after cliche, but like he is the young relatable coach that like everyone loves. There's a reason why players went to bathroom to get the job. There's a reason that guys didn't leave when all this, they lost Marquise Kennedy, but you know, I think that was kind of a mutual parting of ways as much as anything where Marquis saw an opportunity to go potentially start somewhere else uh, instead of potentially coming off the bench as a fifth year guy. Um, you know, he had a tough season. Like they lost, they lost a couple guys off the, you know, on the, on the end of the end of the bench that were in the rotation, you know, maybe spot minutes here and there, but for the most part, I, I do think keeping this team together was, um, you know, a credit to, to players trust in Drew Valentine. I think the other thing too, that kind of comes into it is like, in this day and age of the portal, particularly with NIL, it's really, really hard to get more than say four or five good players in a class, right? Like, you know, most, every Atlantic 10 team is in this boat in some form or fashion. I don't think Loyola is relative, is all that unique. Like they're, they're, they're doing some good work on the NIL front, but like they don't have like unlimited money to spend. So if you have eight scholarships you need to fill, right? If, if all these guys hit the portal, whether they were good, whether it was, you know, starters like, like Ben Schwager and Braden, or if it was, you know, bench players like, you know, Jalen Quinn and Jaden Dawson, who have really bright futures, in my opinion, like if you lose those guys and you have to fill seven or eight, all of a sudden you don't have enough money to go around and you're going to sign worse players than you lost. Right. And I think it was really critical for Loyola. And I think if you look on the league, there are some examples of teams that had to fill a lot of spots and struggled to do it or still haven't. Um, I think it was really critical for Loyola that they kept together this nucleus because I do think there are some really talented young players. And I do think there's real value in keeping some of the guys who've been around the program for a very long time, like Welch and like Brayden. I want to ask you about those really talented young players because they bring back all those guys Matt just mentioned, Alston, Norris, Welch, Schweiger. They bring in four veteran transfers who I assume all showed up with the expectation that they're going to play. All of a sudden, rotation minutes are very thin. So you got four guys outside of that group. You got Jalen Quinn and Jaden Dawson coming back for their second year. You got the highly touted Miles Rubin as the team's only freshman. And you got Sheldon Edwards, who's a much older guy, but kind of fits into that like athletic, somewhat of a scorer at the wing position. Which one of those four do you feel the best about having a big season this year and really working their way into being a key part of the rotation. I think I, I think I would bet on Jaden Dawson. Um, This is a guy that like, when I saw them practice last fall, I was like, wow. Like, I mean, this is a like six, three combo guard with some wiggle who can play with the ball, can play without it. He's athletic. He can shoot. Like, and he was just, you know, he was plagued by injuries. He was dealing with some academic stuff as well. So he was not, you know, fully brain on basketball. And I think if you look at this Loyola team right now, the one hole that you would point out is they don't really have like a natural score on this roster. Maybe Phil Alston. I think Phil has the opportunity to be a really high level scorer in this league, but they don't have like that guard that you just hand the ball to and can go make a play. And I think if you look around the Atlantic 10, there's a lot of guy, a lot of teams who have guys like that, whether it's, you know, Kobe Elvis type at, at, at Dayton, whether that's, you know, the two guards at Duquesne who are tremendous, whether that's, you know, even, you know, obviously James Bishop, right? Like there's a lot of guys in this league, you know, the St. Joe's guards are tremendous examples of this. Like 
you do need the ability to score without running sets. And Loyola is going to have to run a lot of sets to get offense. And so I think having a guy like Jaden Dawson, I think will probably kind of settle into a six-man role who can create like that and score the basketball will make him really valuable. And also just uh, mention Miles Rubin too. I, I think it's like, he's super talented. Like I watched him in the summer with the mean streets. I watched him in January. I saw him play against uh, Xavier Booker, who's a top 10 recruit going to Michigan state. And he like abused Xavier Booker, like the whole night. Like he is really, really good. Yes. He's really skinny. He's got to put weight on. I think it makes sense to bring in the grad transfer and Adela Coon, but like, Miles Rubin's impact, especially defensively as a rim protector, is going to be pretty big in this league, in my opinion. Like, I think he has a chance to be an outstanding uh, player in the Atlantic 10 as, like, a four-year guy. They're going to find a way to get him minutes as, as a freshman. Maybe that's only, you know, 10 to 12 a night. But, you know, I think I think long-term, like, circle that name because I think his his future is just, just super, super bright at Loyola. Yeah, the Loyola fans have been hyping him up on Twitter continuously basically since the moment we knew they were joining the conference and we started following them. So I've been hearing about this guy for years now, but I want to ask you now about some of the guys on the other end of the roster, because this is a team that's way deeper than they were last year. I'd say there's probably no doubt about that, but in order to succeed in the a 10, you got to have a guy who's a first second team, all conference level guy. Does this roster have that player is, is Phil Alston going to be able to make another leap? Because he's already been about as good as you could ask for a D2 transfer. I, I think there's more in him. Um, I, I don't know that it will. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to guarantee, oh, man, like Phil's going to average 17 and nine or you know whatever. But like it felt like there was a lot of games last year where you'd look up and you'd be like, Phil hasn't played that well. And he'd have 12 and eight or he'd have you know 13 and six. Like he's that impactful and he's that athletic. And I think he's a guy, I'm not sure how many people totally know his story, but Phil, Phil Alston was a, was a chubby kid uh, who was a, like a, a small ball center in high school and commits to a low division two school. Like where he came from was not Cal PA is not like a division two powerhouse by any means. Um, and he was always kind of like low motor, low energy Um he collapsed on the floor during a workout and was diagnosed with anemia. Um, And then once that was revealed, they got him on meds and his body changed immediately because he could work out. Like his, his game completely changed because all of a sudden he was this energizer bunny instead of like this low, low energy, low motor guy. And that, that led to like the body transformation where like Phil Olsen is one of the most physically impressive players in the Atlantic 10. He's grown more this offseason. He is bigger and thicker, like stronger athletically this like this offseason. And this is really the first first offseason he's really been able to work on his game because last year was focused obviously on fitting into the system. Uh, the years before that was was the COVID backdrop and Division Two in particular there was a lot of limitations. What you were doing, whether you were on campus, why not? You don't do summers in Division Two on campus, so. I think they're really optimistic that there's a big leap coming from Phil Alston because this is one of the first times they've really been able to get their hands on him just for a long period of time and get him, get him working. And look, he has to be more consistent. Like his effort level at times wasn't good enough at Loyola uh, the last season. Um, They have to find him better ways to get him touches more consistently because of that. And I think there's, 
there's ways they can do that in the offense, whether it's just kind of isolating him at the elbow and things like that. Now that they have more spacing around him, I think that will help. Um, but yeah, he's got to stay out of foul trouble. He's got like he's got stuff to work on. But I think talent wise, if you look around the league, you'd be hard pressed to find too many guys more talented than Phil Alston. Yeah, and we saw what he could do in some of those games. I think specifically about when they played both Dayton and Duquesne, those teams tried hard to take Braden Norris out of the game and basically dared Phil Alston to beat them. And he nearly did both in both of those games against teams playing for a lot more than the Ramblers were at that time. But just to follow up on that, you would know this answer better than any of us. If we take out the bald guy at Charleston who came from West Liberty, was Phil Alston the best player in D1 to transfer up from a lower level last year? Man, that's a great question. Um, oh, I don't think so, but I don't have a name that like is immediately coming to me. Like it has become much more common. As you mentioned, Charleston has just kind of made a living on it. Like Colorado State had a really good center who averaged 12 and six last year, Pat Cartier, who is really good. I think that's really the level we're going to settle in at. Like there's, there's going to be a few high major kids a year that go up. Um, Georgia just took a kid this this spring, RJ Sunahara from Nova Southeastern. Jonathan Pierre, also from Nova, Nova Southeastern, is going to play for Memphis. Um, like he's a like a really kind of freaky, like late growth spurt type kid. But I, I think the level that like D2 kids are really going to start settling in at, the best recruits are going to be A10 Mountain West. Um, and I think that'll be big, obviously, because of NIL. That'll be big because of just kind of the right level, like fit and size and physicality wise compared to a high major game. Sure. There's a Derek White and Max Struess, but I, I think, I think this is going to be an increasingly common Avenue for Atlantic 10 teams to pursue. And, and Loyal has obviously had sex with success, excuse me, with it, with Phil Alston and also with Tate Hall before him, who was in the Missouri Valley with them and was like a, a really nice role player for three years after transferring from, from UND. So going back to some of the newcomers on this year's roster. In some ways, it feels a little bit similar to last offseason for Loyola because, again, bringing in multiple experienced transfers. And I felt like, at least for Tyler and I, not being as familiar with Loyola being new to the A-10, we didn't really have a great sense of who to expect. Like, I don't think either of us thought Olsen would be the most productive transfer. So, you know, looking at some of the newcomers they're bringing in this year, is there maybe a biggest hole on the team that needed filling this offseason and one guy in particular that you feel the most confident that'll step into this program and from day one make an impact? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I kind of said earlier, like size, size, athleticism, and shooting were the three big holes. And I think you can kind of plug those in one by one with shooting being Dolan athleticism being Watson and then size being Dame Adelacoon. I think, I think Adelacoon is probably the most important. Um, they were, you know, Tom Welch had a nice non-con, but the Bryce Golden disaster last year really left them behind the eight ball at the five. And by the end of the year, like they were finding ways to hang in there, but it was kind of solely based on the fact that Welch and Golden were going to try to out physical you on the glass and just, I mean, it was so, so physical when you put on the film of like what they were doing box out wise, they needed a guy who could just come in and be competitive athletically at the five spot. And I think Adela Kuhn, um, he was a high rebound rate guy at Dartmouth um, was really the lone bright spot on a pretty bad team. 
Um, but he's a guy that I think will like was top 30 in the country in block rate. That will be huge for their defense at the rim. Um, he's a good rebounder. He can pass, I think, which will help them. They're obviously not going to run, you know, tons of offense through him the way they would do with the Crutwig. But like the 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 very common comparison you'll hear over and over again is their um, last Missouri Valley team, which was Drew Valentine's first year, was had Chris Knight from Dartmouth. Um, it was kind of a similar statistical profile. Came in, averaged like nine and six, and was you know a starter on a twenty-five win team. So. I think that's a realistic kind of target for, for Dame. They're different players, but I think um, that was the hole that I felt like needed to be filled. And I think because of how challenging it is to add quality bigs in the portal, um, that was like priority number one. And it was the first thing they did in the portal was to get him done. Um, he's a guy that if it was, if he was in, in May, he wouldn't be at Loyola's level. They got him early and, 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 you know, sealed it up while everyone was waiting for better options. Yeah, and after they got Adela Kuhn and Des Watson, we started to hear their fans get excited, and with reason. The roster felt like it was kind of coming together. Like you said, they filled those two big holes. But at that point, I remember saying on the show, I, I was incredibly concerned about their shooting. They went out and got Greg Dolan after that, who is one of the best snipers on the market. That was a, a great pickup. But even with him, do you feel like this team's going to have enough shooting to hang in or is it not going to matter if they get back to good old fashioned, we're going to crush you in the paint with Adela Kuhn and Alston and Welch, Loyola, like the Loyola of the past. Yeah. It's, it's maybe a little light, right? Like I think there's a lot of like can shoot, but not great shooters, right? Like Ben Schweiger can shoot, but Ben Schweiger is not like a 40% three point shooter right now. And I think last year, I mean, they didn't shoot it. They're not, their percentage was okay from three, but the issue was they didn't have like a guy that was a clear threat. Like the guy that you were scared of other than Braden and the ball was in Braden Norris's hands all the time. So I think Dolan actually kind of solves two problems where one, he's the sniper and two, he's, you know, a, a point guard and he played point guard almost exclusively at Cornell. So he can let Braden Norris, take a breather off the ball, but also run off screens and be a shooter, which I think will help them offensively. They absolutely are going to need one of like a Dawson or a Sheldon Edwards or, a you know, maybe Des Watson, who's statistically been kind of mediocre from deep in his career, right? Like they, they need one of those guys to step up and consistently make shots off the bench. But I do think that if you have Dolan and Norris as like big time shooters in the backcourt, Schwager and and Alston is capable guys at the three and the four, and then a bench shooter, whether it's you know one of those one of those one of those guards I mentioned before, that's probably enough. Where I don't think it's a huge detriment to their team. It's obviously not they're not like a team full of snipers, but I think they'll have enough shooting wise um, as long as Schwager and Alston don't take steps back from three. So we've probably gone far too long in this episode without talking about. The one guy that it felt like actually could make a three last year, probably the most important guy to this whole team. And that's the fifth year point guard, Braden Norris. And if you go outside of Loyola fans and his own family, I might be the biggest Braden Norris fan out there, but it, it, it pains me to say he was kind of disappointing last year. Seemed like the chance was there for him to step up and really play like a star, but his shooting efficiency went down. His assists stayed about the same. And, it became pretty clear that he's a pure floor general, one of the few that are left, and that's what makes him a special player. But 
when you're that type of guy and your team's not making shots around you, your stats are not going to look good. So this year with these new reloaded pieces around him, are we going to see the old Braden Norris back? That that would be the hope, right? Like I I think with, I, I think they've done a much better job surrounding him with players that can help him succeed than they did last year. And I think, look, Braden bore a lot of criticism last year because yeah, the turnovers were high and yeah, the shooting did drop and like all those things. And when you're the face of the team, that's what happens. Right. And so then there becomes the, Oh, how does he play without, you know, is he, is he, was he a system guy? How does he look without Lucas Williams? And like Braden Norris was not the problem, right? Braden Norris, Braden Norris's stats were a symptom of the problem, I guess is the way I would describe it. Right. Like Braden Norris can't succeed when he's not surrounded with shooting. Braden Norris can't succeed when no one else on the floor can create a shot. He's not an elite shot creator. Like you said, he's a floor general. He's a, you know, he's a game manager. Um, He's tough as nails. Like every coach in America would love to have Braden Norris. He's great culturally for that team, but they needed to give him help. And I think like, it was it was noti- it was noticeable when you watched them play last year how gassed he was from the physical beating he was taking right i mean he was getting guarded by most teams' best perimeter defender he was running the team for 38 minutes a night he was also your best three point shooter oh and by the way he was almost always working really hard defensively to have to cover you know a point guard or a two guard on the other end because he's strong like he's he's physically very mature so it was just too much to ask of him, and I and I think I think this year the hope will be we can give Braden you know two two four minute breaks right one each half. That would be you'd hope for that. You'd hope that Braden will be able to play a little off the ball with with Greg Dolan there, and you hope that he's a little bit more adjusted to the speed and the athleticism of the guards that Atlanta ten teams have that maybe they didn't always deal with in the valley. Yeah, and I think it was Duquesne specifically that unlocked this, but by late January, it was pretty clear to opposing coaches that it was just too easy to smother Norris and really do everything you could to make him uncomfortable, try to take him out, because the rest of that team wasn't going to hurt you. They didn't have the 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 shot creators, right? Like, Marquise Kennedy's not a dynamic playmaker. Sure. Ben Schweiger, I think, has a bright future, but like he was the guy that was going to make a simple read, right? Catch and attack a closeout, um, you know, push and transition. Like he's not a guy that you were going to say, hey, clear out one on one, go to the rim, right? And I think that's, you know, that's what they needed. That's, and again, then, you know, what that's the one area maybe they didn't totally address this offseason. But I think the hope would be that one of Dawson and Edwards can do that. And I think there's also some optimism. We haven't really talked a lot about him that with Des Watson. Like, I think there's some real optimism in the in the Loyola program that having, you know, kind of freeing him from the rigidity of the, I might've added the syllable there, but like D- Davidson's offense is so rigid. They feel like freeing him up and letting him go attack and make plays. He'll be able to unlock a little bit more offensively than he's shown in the, in the past. Then given the system, I, I, and I, I would, I would tend to agree that like for an athletic slasher, the Davidson offense is not maybe the offense for you. So I, I think overall, though, from this conversation, we can agree there's a lot of optimism around Loyola, whether it's Norris coming back with the potential to be one of the best leaders or the transfers or Miles Rubin as one of the highest upside freshmen. But one change in the program we haven't talked about yet 
a few new faces on the bench this year with Will Bailey stepping in formerly at St. Louis and LaSalle, an assistant coach with a lot of A-10 experience. And then Clayton Custer, a member of the Final Four team, getting promoted to the bench. So what do you think that does for this program, getting a, a couple new guys on the coaching staff, specifically with Custer, somebody who's been around some very successful Loyola teams? Yeah, I think it was I think it was valuable for for Drew to get not just Clayton Custer, but also Keith Clemens, who was on the Loyola team season a player development role, to get those two guys back and just just their presence and like understanding what Loyola basketball looks like, I think that really helps. Um, and that's not to say anything about the guys that they lost because they lost two really good assistant coaches, Amaro Morgan, who's at Cal now. And I truly believe it's going to be like a tremendous division one head coach at some point. Uh, and Pat Wallace, who's now the top assistant at Iona for Tobin Anderson. It's like a really bright offensive mind. He was in charge of all of their offense last season uh, and the year before. So like those were losses, but I do think that getting guys who understand Loyola basketball in really helps. Uh, and then Will, Will Bailey having tremendous understanding of the league. I mean, he's been at three Atlantic 10 programs here in the last like 12 months between UMass with, with Frank and then also St. Louis for, for a long time before. And then, um, you know, just for the past year with Travis Ford and him being a Chicago guy who also understands the A-10 kind of makes him a slam dunk in my mind for, for that spot. So I think, I think, getting a little older on staff makes sense getting some guys who've been around what Loyola basketball looks like when it's good makes sense. Um, but also not again, kind of completely tearing it up. I, I think, I, I think it was a positive off season in, in all for, for Loyola on the staff front. I think it'll, I think it'll help them. And I think it'll help. I mean, look, Drew, Drew's a young coach. Like Drew's, Drew's still 31, I believe might've turned, may have just turned 32. Um, he's, you know, he's, a, he's still learning. And I think, getting some fresh voices in his ear after two years probably will help him as well. So to close out the Loyola specific part of this, where do you see this team right now in the middle of July? Are they a title contender? Are they probably a middle of the pack team or they may be kind of slogging their way through the bottom again this year? I mean, I certain I, I would say more middle of the pack, right? I, I, I understand the optimistic case and I've kind of basically laid it out, right? Like, if you if, if like if Greg Dolan and and Dame adjust well from the Ivy to 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 the A10 the way that uh, Ryan Schwieger and Chris Knight did, and if Phil Alston makes the jump, and if Jaden Dawson is good enough, and if Des Watson's kind of unlocked, right? Like there's a path where you say yeah, that's a top three ish team in the league, and I know like T rank has Loyola like top sixty five in the country, right? And if if Loyola's sixty fifth in Ken Palm at the end of the year or in T rank from 260 where they were last year then like drew valentine should be in like the national coach of the year conversation like that's like a those jumps don't happen like 200 is a is a huge huge swing so you know i i think that's probably too bullish to expect but i think if they can get into like the one you know the the, the 100 to 125 vicinity win you know 18 to 20 games and be in that five to seven range in the league i think that's a successful year for loyola um, that's a step in the right direction. That's all. We're not going anywhere. And look, like this league's going to be wide open, right? I don't know that there's a team on paper where you say, yeah, that's like, that's an at-large type team, maybe Dayton, maybe VCU if it clicks. Right. But like, I, I think there's, there's real, you know, power to rise here. If you're Loyola, there's, there's a path to being right in that mix and certainly being in the mix in the conference tournament, if nothing else. So I think that's where you have to be. Um, 
anything less, I think, would be a disappointment. Um, because look, you're going to lose Alston and Norris after this year. You're going to lose Del- Dolan. You're going to lose Adele Coon. Like, it is not like this is this group is all running it back in a year. It's not to say that this is the opportunity. They will continue to recruit well, right? Ruben and guys like that have bright futures. But I do think you kind of sit there if you're if you're a Loyola fan and you say we better be competitive this year because if this core can't be competitive, it's going to be hard to replicate it and be a lot better next year. Yeah. So, you mentioned oh. that that hundred to 125 range is I'd say an attainable goal for the Ramblers. And, you know, that's really kind of where the upper middle of the pack of the A-10 has lived the last few years. And last year it was a little bit worse than that with it being one of the, weakest seasons the conference has seen in the last 15 years or so but overall heading into this year just for the a10 in general where do you perceive the league and the direction that it's going obviously there's been a ton of coaching change and last year i don't think it was that surprising that some teams would take a step back as they went through that but do we have a chance do you think to get back to where the a10 was in the 2015-16 little bit of better times I, mean, I think, like, I, I think on paper it's going to be a down another down year, right? Like maybe maybe two, right? Maybe two bids, but I think more like more likely one. Um, but I think I think the funny thing with all of this, and I said this like late last season, the A ten struggles don't seem to be based on like a lack of they're like the the things that I would say like if if I was an AD right or I was a conference commissioner, the things I would be telling my programs to do right now would be like investing in quality proven head coaches um investing in support staff and investing in nil really heavily in all those three areas right those would be my three big things and like if you look around the league like the investment has been there like like the coaching hires like dating back to like when mason spent a million dollars on kim english like that was that was the first kind of like line in the sand like hey look we're doing this Right. And UMass to spend what they spent on on Frank and URI to spend what they spent on Archie. Like the list goes on and on. Right. And I do think there's been some really positive movement in the NIL world in the league. Right. Like I, you know, I mentioned Loyola. They've made some, they've made some real headway and they think they're making more headway. Um, St. Bonaventure's made some pretty big strides in that department. Um, and, and that helped them land their transfer class. Obviously, VCU and Dayton, you expect to be very strong in that area. Like I don't look around at like what the A10 has done or like in the, whether it's in the portal or in NIL and say like, man, like the league is like, is missing something. Right. Sometimes it's just like bad luck or like the coaches don't work out. Did you think, right. Like, I mean, maybe Frank Martin turns out to be a bust at UMass. Sure. But like hiring a guy who's been to a final four doesn't make it a bad, that's not a bad hire. That was, that was good process, maybe a bad result. Right. So I think, I think some of the stuff about the Atlantic 10 as a whole has been overblown. Yeah. There's some like, industry headwinds that aren't great for the league right now right like there's fewer and fewer bids outside the power leagues uh it's harder without football money like all those things are true but i think like i i i've i've had this kind of slightly bullish outlook on the league this spring that no one else really seems to have because i don't think the league is doing a ton wrong just they're, they're not the teams just aren't good enough right now and you would think that eventually that will change so you said you're predicting probably another down year. And at this point in the middle of July, I'd say we both probably agree with you, but that's now about a half decade of down years where you look at the last five seasons, there's really only been four teams that 
felt like guaranteed at largest going into the conference tournament weekend. And the A-10's in a weird place where it went from being severely underrated like 10 years ago because it wasn't a power conference to now it quietly snuck down. It was 10th or sorry, 12th in among conferences, whatever you want to look at last year, Ken Palm, Torvik, T-Rank, it was a bad year. But as long as the national media, whether it's Jeff Goodman or you mentioning how many great coaches are in this league, which are tr- which is true, or Dick Vitale and Joe Lenardi going on, hey, this is a conference. They used to get three, four, five bids every year. As long as the narrative stays there, it's not going to fall down to being a low major. But are you seeing anything that, let's say, three years from now, it can get back to the point where it's three bids every year, maybe even sniffing a fourth in a good year? Because right now, it's they're on a path going down the opposite way. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that, like, I... I don't know that I feel great about that. I mean, look, I, I guess I guess the way I would put it is this, right? Like, the Mountain West has gotten four bids these the past two years, and I don't I don't look around and see like what is Mountain West doing that the A ten's not like yeah, there's like a little bit of football money there, but like that's not there's not enough that it's like really changing the paradigm. Um, if you look at like general like kind of program investment, you know, they like the Mountain West's coaching hires have been better. The ads have made better decisions. Like they've gotten a little luckier, right? Like. I mean, think think about it this way: the, the Mountain the Mountain West had two elite coaches, and uh, Nico Medved and Brian Dutcher, who were seen as kind of one A and one B for Minnesota two years ago, and then Minnesota kind of pivoted last second and wanted to hire a an African American coach and hired Ben Johnson, right? Like sometimes it's just bad luck, right? Like VCU just lost a really good coach and and Mike Mike Rhodes, and because bad luck right penn state penn state shouldn't have opened this year like it just you know Mike michael win like penn state doesn't open this year if michael shrewsbury doesn't have his team hit two buzzer beaters in march before the big 10 tournament like that doesn't get michael doesn't get notre dame like it, these things are just like like you, you can really game it out and realize that there's a lot of just very kind of tricky stuff that happens that shifts things mat- drastically for, for league so like I, I look at the Mountain West and I see like why can't the A10 be close to that? Because I don't see the programs being drastically worse. I mean, the the Mountain West, unbelievably, like they've had completely different teams be in the contention for the postseason. It hasn't just been oh, you know, San Diego State's been really strong. Like Colorado State and Wyoming got at larges, and then they were really down the next year. Nevada was really down the year before, and they got at large this past year. So I think there's there's a path to getting back to that. But again, if you ask me like what's the blueprint for the A10 to do that, I don't sit here and pretend to say that there's like a there's a clear thing that the league's not doing that i think they should be doing better like it's hire better coaches and if if you want to make the comparison utah state probably the second best program in the mountain west the last 10 years vcu just took their coach right so it's not like ryan odom saw that as a step down in leagues correct i mean and i mean obviously odom was kind of a specific circumstance where he wanted to get out of utah and was losing a lot and like you know, knew he wanted to get back to the East Coast to get an ACC job one day. Like, yeah, I, I get it. VCU is a really unique job. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think people really, really, really value the league. And I, I, don't, I don't see why it can't get back to at least being like two to three, right? Maybe it's not going to be three to four. But if it can be two with a possible instead of one with a possible, that's a big deal in the, in the grand scheme of the league. And it, it makes, you know, the rising tide does does lift all boats in that front. Yeah, I mean, 2020 was two with a possible if, 
Dayton and Richmond had somehow both gotten upset if that tournament had happened. So it's not that far away. But before we wrap things up, we'll take it back to on the court. I want to know two teams for you in this conference. Number one, the team that you would take sitting here, I think we're four months in a day from the first tip-off, who you would take to win in what might be the most wide-open year in this conference in a long time. And then a second team that you're just kind of intrigued by, whether it's you have a lot of questions or you're just kind of excited to see them play come November. Yeah, I'm going to take Dayton in the league just because I feel like when you have two really good guards and a really good big, you're going to be hard to beat. And, you know, I, I'm not, it's not to say, I don't think they'll run away with it, but I think they're like the pretty safe choice on, you know, July 5th or 6th or whatever it is that we're recording here. Um, and then an interesting team. Hmm. There's a lot of ways you could go with that. Hmm. I'm I'm very interested to see if Duquesne and Fordham, but I think particularly Duquesne is for real or not. Because the schedule strength thing really swung both Fordham and Duquesne up a notch last year. Fordham loses enough players where they could take a huge step back and you could just say it's because they lost Quisenberry and, and Khalid Moore. And Duquesne really brings back the nucleus and gets a little bit better. They got a little bit more, a little bit bigger, a little bit more athletic up front a little longer like on paper this is a duquesne team where if like you swapped it out and even gave them like the george mason label you'd probably be like yeah this is like a clear top three-ish team in the league i could like in that large and i don't think that's kind of the national narrative because it's duquesne right it's what they've been so um i'm i'm just interested to see like how real is that is that is that a team that kind of sputters its way to seventh or eighth or is that a team that can really make some make a forward push and, and i think the other thing is like keith dambrot i think is a is an outstanding x's and o's coach and has done a great job of evaluating talent but the thing that has been a challenge for him at duquesne is like keeping guys happy for a long time and this is one of the first offices that they haven't had massive turnover but i'm curious like if they hit any rough patches how will the relationships inside that team evolve? And I think that's particularly challenging because they lost Charles Thomas, who is a great assistant and um, off to St. Louis, who is a great, great with the players, really good relationships and just a really outstanding coach who I think deserves some, some great opportunities. I'm glad he got the one at St. Louis. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens with Duquesne because I think the upside is pretty high, but I think there's probably a lower floor than people maybe realize. Yeah, and there is some big colliding forces here because when Keith Dambrot has a good team, brings back the core, he tends to do great things with it. But when Duquesne gives their fans hope in the last 40 years, they tend to immediately drive straight off the cliff. But <laughs> final question here for you, Kevin, because the season, we're all, we can all already see it coming on the horizon. And one of the most important things for the A-10 is going to be to actually win some big non-conference games next year first weekend of the entire season your current favorite the Dayton Flyers go on the road to a team that you are very very well versed in and that is the Northwestern Wildcats that's right yes so for all of the Dayton fans listening right now just give us a way too early one minute breakdown on what to expect from Northwestern this year I mean they're coming off a resurgent year um made the NCAA tournament kind of out of nowhere um and, and bring back their star point guard and Boo Booey, who is one of the best, has, has really evolved into one of the best guards in the country. This guy who I think 
I, I thought for three years wasn't a guy you could win with and then just proved me so wrong last season with the way he took over games late in the, late in the season and late in, late, in, late in the clock as well. So, look, they, they rebuilt their defense. Teams are going to know what's coming now, but their defense is very aggressive. They're going to send doubles on every post catch. They're going to take their on homes out of the game. Um, and they're going to kind of swarm you and hope to, hope to force turnovers. And um, I, I think talent-wise, there's really not a big gap between Northwestern and, and Dayton. If anything, you could argue that, that Dayton's got more raw talent than Northwestern, who's a returning NCAA tournament team. But Northwestern will have, I think, a really good fan turnout for that game. Obviously, look, Dayton fans are unbelievable. They're going to travel. They're going to take over upper decks of Welsh Ryan like they like Big Ten fan bases do. But the students were great at Northwestern last year. I think it'll be kind of similar, especially early in the year with excitement, first big game of the year. Um, that's going to be a, just like a really good college basketball game. I'm excited for it. I'll probably try to go, assuming that I'm not somewhere else kind of gallivanting around the college basketball landscape. But it should be a fun one. I mean, Northwestern loses kind of their heart and soul defensively in Chase Audige, but replaces him with Ryan Langborg, who is you know, the star guard for Princeton in the NCAA tournament run at 316. So they've got a chance to be really good. They drastically missed the expectations this, uh, the last time they made the NCAA tournament the next season. Um, I'm very curious to see if Chris Collins can avoid that fate a second, consec- a second consecutive time. It's a big year, but I think the excitement will be high and uh, should be a, a really good first weekend matchup and, a, a, and one that Dayton could really use to, to build an at-large resume. Yeah, and that, that game will bring out a big question. You said that they're going to swarm Deron Holmes. Well, last year when teams did that, Tamani Kamara would normally plunge the dagger against their defenses. We'll see how Dayton can react to that early on. But one certainty, the Dayton-Chicago contingent will be out in force that night, and that game is is going to be nuts in there. So certainly be exciting for all the Dayton and Northwestern fans. But Kevin Sweeney, thank you so much for joining us. Where can everyone find your great work? Yes, uh, still uh, do all my written content over at uh, Sports Illustrated, si.com. Find me on Twitter as long as that keeps rolling along at CBB underscore central. And I don't know, like an hour ago, I made a a threads account. We'll see if by the time that anyone's listening to this, if people have decided that app's cooked or not. But I believe my my handle on there is Kevin Sweeney 27. So uh, Come say what's up. I'll be uh, covering Peach Jam and NBA Summer League here in the next 10 days or so. So lots uh, lots on the docket and doesn't doesn't never slows down. Yeah, everyone be sure to go and follow Kevin. Great college basketball content. Great NBA draft content, although that won't be that relevant for a long time here. But now we're going to get some AAU stuff coming from you as well. So everyone be sure to follow him. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it, guys. All right, another thank you to Kevin for joining us. Thank you to all of you who are continuing to tune into these off-season episodes of the 3Bid League podcast. As a reminder, if you haven't already, be sure to go back. We got plenty of good ones already out this summer that have not aged really at all. Last week, we did our red, white, and blue chips talking about the guaranteed stars breakout players and potential wild cards at every position for next season. We talked to Matt Gifford of Hawk Hill Hardwood about St. Joe's upcoming season and David Korn about GW changing their name to the revolutionaries. That was back in May. And then of course, before that we went deep dive 
on all things Philadelphia college basketball with the great Hoops Weiss. We had an episode where we talked about different transfers. We got plenty. So as we go into the dog days of sports podcasting summer, be sure to go catch up on all of ours. Be sure to keep an eye out. We should have a TBT episode coming here for you in the next week or two, about two and a half weeks off from the start of that. And if you've enjoyed the show, please be sure to go on. Give us five stars on iTunes. Leave us a comment on there. We always read those. We appreciate your feedback. Be sure to tune in for that TBT episode and enjoy this hot, hot July. Awesome.